Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome to another splendiferous episode of The Fifth Column. This is your weekly, not even almost weekly, but I can say weekly rhetorical assault on the news and the people that make it, including sometimes ourselves, particularly when I, Matt Welch, am hosting the show instead of Camille Foster, who is kind of on paternity leave, kind of not, on the phone here from Freethink Media. I'm Matt Welch from uh, Reason. We're also here with Anthony Fisher, who's stepping from uh, behind the mic to on the mic here. Yeah, I've got I've lost my gamer mic and I'm actually in Camille's Papa Bear seat. So you can hear that booming stentorian uh, voice. We also have a, uh, a guest who we're just going to not talk about uh, to begin with uh, here. Um, but let's just talk about him. Uh, Jeff Blair, ladies and gentlemen, we've all been on his podcast, except for Camille, for reasons that are really uh, difficult to understand um, here. Uh, Jeff is uh, wears two hats, um, one as the uh, co-founder of Decision Desk HQ, which does incredible real-time analysis of uh, politics and polling and elections on election nights that you just got to go there. Um, they have a deal with BuzzFeed and other kind of stuff. But more importantly, he's also the co-conspirator of the Political Beats uh, podcast, which National Review co-hosts, uh, uh, which in which he pulls weird political commentators and makes them talk about their favorite bands. We've had Anthony on talking about Pink Floyd. We've had Moynihan, who obviously is out in the ether in Hollywood um, doing all the uh, the meth as we speak. Moynihan was talking about uh, the Smiths. I went on and talked about REM. That's enough of my voice. Jeff, how the hell are you, man? I am great. I am great to be here. Uh, I have prepared by bringing a very large bottle of very cheap whiskey. So yes. Yes. I, am in, I am in fine fettle for tonight's show. And if I may add, Jeff is also uh, a, a legitimate Twitter celebrity in his own right for mm-hmm. his uh, feed at Esoteric CD, where he is famous for his tweet storms, uh, stream of consciousness, but loaded for bear with uh, both historical context and a lot of soul about innumerable bands and definitely worth a follow, both for his uh, very sardonic political commentary and his uh, brilliant musical tweet storms. But to be honest, I'm the musical version of Eric Garland. There's nothing to be <laughs> proud of here. Uh, it's about one year ago today where you unleashed the game theory of the Beach Boys. The, th- the really irritating thing about Jeff is that he knows more about your favorite band than you do. <laughs> I, 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 I don't doubt for a second that he knows more it. about Kanye than, than Camille does. I actually would say that's not true. I know a lot about Kanye, but there are definitely people out there who are much bigger fans. Uh, Camille, before we start talking about all the things, which obviously is going to include... Uh, the Roy Moore uh, near miss in Alabama, the various uh, perv NATO uh, ramifications that are uh, that are rolling out. And obviously the Internet, as we know it, died today. We're recording this on the evening of December the 14th. Uh, you'll be hearing this on 15th or the 16th, depending on your lives. Um, uh, but uh, net neutrality was uh, was rescinded, the regulation, um, uh, this afternoon or earlier, and people are freaking out about it. But before all that, Camille, paternity leave, you're calling from yeah. your bunker in Bed-Stuy. How are you doing? I, I'm doing I'm doing well. Um, it's not the, uh, the filthy diapers. It's the sleep deprivation, um, mm. as I've, I've come to learn. And by sleep deprivation, I mean, you know, you sleep two to three consecutive hours, and that is pretty much what you get before some small person starts screaming 
um, and uh, just because she shat herself and you need to change her and she wants to eat. And in three hours, this process will repeat itself. And apparently it just goes on like this for 18 years. No, um, and it's longer, wonderful. longer. Because... I love her and it's amazing and she's beautiful. And fortunately, she looks exactly like her mom. So wait, how so many weeks? I am, uh, I'm very pleased. Um, weeks. Or months. It's like kind of one week. One week. <laughs> one wow. week. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, Camille, we are, we are toasting uh, your beautiful daughter's uh, birth. Welcome into this world. Poop on her daddy with uh, a tasteful uh, bottle of Noah's, Noah's Mill. Mill genuine bourbon whiskey, handmade in the hills of Kentucky. It's a, it's it's a it, it looks like a wine bottle. It's so classy, uh, and we also have, you know, this is this is such a good bottle of booze that our backup is an eighteen year old Glenlivet. And this is courtesy of uh, Fifth Column listener Tim Wilcoff. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much, Tim. The uh, the creativity of the people who send booze, and I, I keep uh, 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 I'm, I'm just in the position of continuous wonder that in the what 18 months that we've been doing this kind of stuff, I have certainly drank more brown <laughs> liquids combined than in the prior like uh, 47 and a half years uh, combined. Camille, what is the one lesson besides uh, that you don't get to sleep and Anthony is just laughing at you and judging <laughs> at you uh, as we speak about this? What What's the lesson of what do you know now that you didn't know 10, uh, 10 days ago or, or you know three weeks ago? It's harder and more wonderful than everyone promised. Um, I'm, I'm genuinely pleased with the whole thing. Um, I didn't realize that I needed this small person to come in and disrupt the course of my life and to give me all sorts of new things to be concerned about. I am constantly checking her at night to make certain that she's still breathing because I like her so much. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased. This is, uh, this was, it's not like it wasn't planned, but, uh, I, I wasn't always certain that this would be, uh, something I would ever do. Um, but I'm, I'm pleased, very pleased. That's all I got. Uh, have you trotted out yet? In the middle of uh, Twitter argumentation with uh, various uh, haters, have you brought up the uh, as the father of a daughter? Yeah, have you <laughs> played that one? Wow, yeah. I haven't I haven't done that yet, but that's yeah. because I haven't decided to defend rapists this week. So you really are sleep deprived. I'll save that for until she's about a month old. At that point, I'll feel like I have the real authority to do it. That's, so I think uh, of, of all of us fifth columnists, we collectively have. Seven daughters and no sons. That is insane. That people don't. <laughs> people don't have boys anymore. It's yeah, over. That's yeah. uh. It's Because uh, we're all low beta, low T beta cucks. <laughs> soy boy, soy boys. We're, we're, no, we're trying to make up for China uh, since they, they went. They went all male over there, so we're trying to do all female over there. <laughs> Blair, are, are are you a breeder yet? Me? Yeah. Um. N- technically, no. And that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> <Ooh>. What <laughs> in hell? Are you a like a sperm donor? No, you just think about it, gents. Think about hmm. it. Hmm. I don't want to think right now. Nope. No, it's a, there's enough of this in the news. <laughs> Speaking of Roy Moore, <laughs> Decision Desk, which is awesome. Actually, I, could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this? Because the world is filled with people who look at elections. Uh, on uh, on Tuesday, unbeknownst to, to – or sort of sprung on the world, like what the New York Times got this incredible like uh, dial meter thing that everyone was obsessing about. I was at a – uh, at the Nets game, actually, while everyone was freaking out about the election. Speaking of which, at the Nets game, third quarter, no Roy Moore. No oh, nice. Roy Moore. Go Brooklyn. At the Nets game. But um, uh, no, the uh, New York Times had the sort of arrow pointing at, at things. But I had always thought that kind of the, uh, the the mainstream media, the MSM, Jeff, 
had this stuff covered. And then you guys get people out there. There's like volunteers and you're smart. Tell me about the history of Decision Desk. When did it start? What do you do? How is it different? Why is it good? Is it good? I mean, we it's become a relatively well-oiled machine uh, from its very, very humble origins back in uh, 2012. First time we ever tried to do this was in the uh, uh, Romney-Obama race in the presidential election. Um, it was volunteer-based back then. We're not entirely volunteer-based now, but we used to have a mostly volunteer system where people would just go and – Either they would sit online, you know, that's what we used to sit online and get the tabulations for the votes uh, from like the websites. A lot of websites do automatic updating or you get on the phone and call. How many times did I get on the phone to like random ass Alabama, Mississippi counties where like their their election systems are run with, you know, sticks and stones practically because they're very, very like not up and up on the technology stuff, or at least they haven't been for a long time. That's super racist, Um, by the way. Go on. Yeah, but now we've gotten uh, over the last two cycles, particularly from 2016-2014 onward, uh, we have, so to speak, professionalized. We're not, we're obviously not, you know, uh, the AP or anything like that. Although we like to eat their lunch on a daily basis, but uh, what we are is we we know because we understand the way every one of these states votes. We understand their voting patterns. We understand the weight of the vote, where it comes from, where historical patterns suggest that important precincts are going to be, important counties are going to be. We get volunteers on the ground to go out there, show up in person to get the early results, the tabs, so we can bring them in. And um, we've uh, there's some lot of really interesting irons in the fire right now, balls in the air, things that we're going to probably announce in the new year, so I can't really talk about them. But let's just say there's a lot of really exciting new partnerships that could be coming up for the Decision Desk in the new year. Um, and we're really proud of the work we've done. And, and essentially, what it gets down to, if you say, well, what do they do? Is it, We tabulate the votes, we make the race projections, we do historical analysis on voting patterns and voting trends. So, I mean, I what's my actual official title there? I would be an elections analyst. I'm also sort of the informal mouth of Sauron and hype man for the <laughs> for the uh, for the desk because like it, I've got the Twitter feed and the people follow, so I just sort of like, you know, get out there and start shouting for people to give us money and it seems to work. Well, one of the things that you shouted early in the night as I was uh, you know, sitting in the rafters of the nets. I was there because uh, my 9-year-old uh, yeah. was uh, doing taekwondo. Like at uh, you know forty five minutes before the uh, before tip off, there. Right. So we were literally sitting at the uh, the row uh, the the penultimate row uh, high up in the uh, in the theater. Uh, so I was uh, hastily refreshing Twitter uh, with a bad connection, but I saw early <laughs> on that uh, that old uh, Jeff Blair was like, you know what. Um, we're pretty pretty confident that this is going to go Roy Moore before before yeah. the stuff coming out. So like, explain yes. why you have egg on your face, sir. I don't have egg on my okay. face. I said we were leaning hard that way, and I'll tell you the reason why, and I'll tell you exactly how it changed in the middle of it. Of course, that's why we don't make calls. And it's, you know, I said yeah, we're leaning this way, but we have no official call yet. But yeah, what happened is really fascinating, and it's this, really the story of what happened in Alabama Senate all around, which is that we saw early patterns where Roy Moore, we, first of all, uh, that uh, Doug Jones. The Democratic candidate would be doing very well in the early vote. Um, and then, of course, those early vote uh, numbers, you know, absentee ballots and things like that, uh, started getting really brutally eaten away uh, by the day of voting uh, for uh, Roy Moore. And that pattern was a really solid trend going all the way through the early hours of voting. And what we did not know, what was always the big X factor when it came to predicting what the outcome in the Alabama Senate race was going to be, is what 
turnout among white evangelicals would look like. We knew that black turnout and turnout in the urban democratic centers would actually be pretty good. We didn't know how good it would be, but we figured these people are really motivated. And Roy Moore is, is a, a guy who polarizes people and gets in the polls. But we didn't know and we couldn't know until we saw stuff coming in a lot later is how depressed the, norm, the natural Republican evangelical constituency, particularly educated suburbanites outside of places like Birmingham or Montgomery or Mobile were going to end up voting. And what happened is that – and this is, I think, again, tells the tale of how Doug Jones managed by the skin of his teeth, a very narrow amount. It's 22,000 votes, um, but 1.5 percent about uh, how he managed to win in one of the reddest states in the union. It's because there was essentially a sit-down strike by a lot of otherwise reliable Republican votes. And then meanwhile, on the other end, uh, Democratic turnout spiked for reasons that you know when you look at a guy like Roy Moore or for that matter when you look at Donald Trump's popularity, doesn't really ne need much explanation. So like it was about I think I would say. You know, about 7.45, 8 o'clock, we, we have a, an IRC chat. It's not an IRC, but we have like our own little like control room where we're all talking to each other as we do these updates. Brandon was doing a live cast with BuzzFeed, and then we suddenly realized like, oh shit, man, Moore is now no longer getting the numbers that he needs to get. And that was the moment I said like, all right, if, if Jones actually manages to pull this out, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm dropping my nuclear Elmo meme because I, I can't believe that this could happen. And it almost didn't. Let's be clear here. Doug Jones won. But he barely scraped his way across the finish line. And again, I make no bones about my politics, you know, where I stand. I'm a conservative guy, but I'm also very much uh, loathed Roy Moore. I couldn't have been happier with the results of that election. And I also find it uh, mildly depressing that it took this to defeat Roy Moore. You know, he had to be as awful and noxious a person as he was and an accused child molester during the presidency of a very unpopular man to lose by about a percent, a percent and a half. But it happened. And I just I, I will be, you know, frank with you guys. I, I think that the nation is better for it. To say nothing of the Republican Party, which is massively better off for it. They don't have this guy as an anchor around them for the next several years. What was a uh, what was a thing as someone who, you know, is, is right in the thick of that? And I'm sure you can't help but notice kind of media hot takes or just media coverage of it. Uh, what was a thing, a common theme that people got wrong or a sort of a myth that was perpetuated in real time or just some kind of cock up that happened in the process of that election that with your expertise made your uh, fingernails scratch on the wall? Oh, uh, I would say the uncertainty about the polls. Uh, the way the polls were always interpreted uh, always makes me want to bang my head against the wall to the point where I get a giant goiter uh, because I'm so, so appalled at the sort of the casual ignorance uh, evinced by people whose job it is to cover politics and comment on electoral politics when it comes to polling, when it comes to statistics. You've got a situation here where the final uh, real clear politics average, just go with that. It's it's a pretty solid one. Uh, had uh, Roy Moore up by 2.2 percentage points. Okay, he was he was the R was up 2.2 in Alabama Senate when all was said and done, and the D Doug Jones ended up winning by 1.5. So that's a delta of three percentage points. People will say, "Oh, the polls were off." The polls weren't off. 
The polling average there was really good. A 3% margin of error in a very nationalized race where a modeling the electorate is almost impossible. Think of all the various contingent factors that made it impossible to figure out who the hell was going to show up to vote for this damn race. You have a special election, an off-off year. You have it nationalized because of the intense focus of not only on Trump, but Bannon, but then Roy Moore, Roy Moore's hijinks, not only his past career as a Supreme Court justice who got removed from the bench and all the really crazy shit he said throughout his career. But then, of course, the child molestation allegations, the, you know, the, the dating underage kids. There are so many things that made it impossible to model this electorate. And despite that, the polls on the aggregate got it right. And I don't think people appreciate that. I think people also don't understand to that same token. Now, uh, in 2016, the polls really didn't get it wrong. They were off, but they weren't off in any state or nationally in a way that would make you say this is a major polling failure. You can think of one state in the entire country that was really wrong in terms of where its polling average was, and that was Wisconsin. Nobody really realized how Trump, how competitive Trump was in Wisconsin or that he could take it. But in Michigan and in Pennsylvania, those numbers were very close at the end. We just sort of had primed ourselves to not want to believe it. I think similarly with Moore, a lot of people prime themselves to just assume, well, at the end of the day, it's Alabama. You know, these these uh, you know evangelicals are going to suck it up and vote for an evil guy. Um, but it didn't happen. Uh, it, we should have believed the numbers. The numbers were not wrong on average. This said toss-up when you went into it looking on the last day before the election, and that's exactly what it was. It was a toss-up race that the Democrat narrowly edged out. Speaking of, speaking of the people who turned out, like the big post-election narrative is – and I, I know Camille's going to have something to say about this, but it was one that um, Republican voters – were way less enthusiastic. They they voted at a fraction of the that they voted for Donald Trump, but that black voters in what they call the black belt in those south uh, central, coincidentally, uh, counties in Alabama all came out at about 80 percent of what they voted for in the 2016 election. Uh, and that that was probably the difference between the depressed turnout of uh, rural white voters and the huge turnout of urban ish black voters in Alabama. Was that something that the polls saw or was that surprising? Well, it's not the polls never usually, especially in a state that's as you know, sparsely polled as Alabama. We didn't have those sort of regional breakdowns in a way to know. You can have demographic breakdowns in terms of race, African-American voters versus white voters, evangelical voters. But regional issues are also really important here. And so it matters when, you know, people in the suburbs of the major urban centers of Alabama, let's say like Mobile, Montgomery, Selma, uh, Birmingham, uh, how they voted. I mean, the narrative there is essentially right. Those Without those two things happening in concert, Doug Jones doesn't win. You have to have elevated black turnout, really motivated black turnout. And he also had to have, as I said, uh, Republicans and evangelicals, particularly educated ones, sitting on their hands or crossing over to vote for Jones. It's not that Moore didn't get his numbers in his rural areas, the places that actually kind of you know, constitute his base. He did decently in his, those rural areas. That's not where he fell short. Where he fell short is in the Republican suburbs. I wouldn't. They're not just Republican-leaning suburbs. They're blood-red Republican suburbs of these cities, mm -hmm. and that's where the people who like you know the white-collar guys, 
men and women, they did not show up for Roy Moore. And that's the kind of thing that we thought – well, we understood that in any scenario where Doug Jones is going to win this race, that had to happen. But we had no idea going in whether it would or not. Again, how do you model this electorate except after the fact? So, Camille, what do you think What do you think about the, uh, the voter suppression narrative that bef- both before and after this, uh, this election? Yeah, I, I, I was only paying so much attention to this election because I had other wonderful things happening <laughs> in my life. Um, not that I would have been paying a great deal of attention anyways because it's Alabama. Um, Smart man. The thing that I find most curious about this is the way that the Alabama election becomes like this national political touchstone. We are we're having a referendum on the respectability of the Republican Party, um, the respectability of American politics or the American polity in general. Um, I find a lot of that like um, pretty overwrought and, and overdone. I mean, the fact yeah. of the matter is just like in the general election, I mean, Republicans vote for Republican candidates. Um, sometimes they stay home when the polling that I saw done about the, the sexual misconduct allegations, um, and I'll, I'll use that phrase, uh, although it's somewhat loaded, as we've discussed on the program in the past, um, you know, most of the Republicans who were willing to vote for more did not believe the allegations. They were saying that they didn't believe these things to be true and that they thought it was some sort of conspiracy. Now, one can have a conversation about you know, how, how poisonous the conservative movement is and how dim all of those people are who don't believe the news. Um, but it's, it's worth noting that people find ways to rationalize supporting candidates who are accused of doing bad things. Um, and that both Democrats and Republicans have a, a track record of doing that. I think looking at any one election and wondering aloud, like whether or not this is the thing that proves that we're not corrupt and awful, um, is a is a problem. And the fact that this particular election sort of sanitizes some I mean, of the I've... establishment conservatives who are against the Steve Bannons of the world and the the alt right. Um, I, I just I think that is a bit much. But I mean, to that to that other thing that you mentioned, um, Fisher, the narrative about um, voter suppression. Um, I saw some of those messages coming across the transom uh, via Twitter, um, <laughs> indicating that there were long waits and um, all sorts of problems at some of the uh, some of the polling places in in black counties and. I mean, I, I don't know how it works in Alabama because I'm not in Alabama and I generally don't care what's happening there. Um, not not because I'm mean, but just because I don't live there. Um, but I don't know if there's some sort of grand scheme uh, at work uh, in order to try and disenfranchise Alabama voters today in 2017 and to prevent them from voting for the Democratic candidate. Um, to the extent that that thing does exist, it certainly didn't work. Um, so I don't know that I have much more to say about that. Um, than than I've already said. It is it is a, a bit funny to me that there there really are like these conspiracy theories that just take root and thrive um, for the left and the right. And one of the the ones that's constantly recurring is Democrats when it's convenient for them like love to talk about um, voter suppression and voter fraud and this 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 rampant. Um, epidemic of Republicans keeping certain people from voting. Um, and occasionally Donald Trump likes to do it as well. Um, but all in all, I'm just not certain that there's a lot of evidence that there's a hell of a lot of that happening uh, anyways today. Fish, do you think you've you followed a lot of uh, Roy Moore's kind of uh, 
like we can say, I think just insane kind of running commentary on the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that the surrogates were saying, um, just, uh, uh, um, you know, I, I think it's beyond the notion of respectable politique. It's like, I can't believe that we're really even discussing this kind of lawless troll uh, who has some really uh, um idiotic ideas about creeping Sharia law and, and uh, Muslim Americans and all this kind of stuff. Um, Camille was, was sort of saying Democrats and Republicans too. Do you think that there are, um, is there any daylight created by the Democrats ritually purging Al Franken a week before this election uh, to try to say, hey, look, we might've been the party of Bill Clinton and, and Gloria Steinem covering up for him in 1998, but we're not now. We're the party of pushing out John yeah. Conyers and they are not. Is there is there some useful daylight between the two parties on that in your mind? Uh, I mean, useful, no. <laughs> I mean, like I, to me, to me th- th- that was Kirsten Gillibrand uh, lining herself up for 2020. She was the first one to come out and say, Franken's got to go. And it was after the seventh accusation against Franken. Not the first six, but the seventh was when Gillibrand was like, I'm a female, prominent New York Democratic senator, and my colleague, who I previously loved, Al Franken, must go now. And that started a cascade that lasted maybe two hours <laughs> before there were 20 Democratic senators on board, including all of the female sen- senators, uh, that said Franken has to go. Conyers was 87 and and he was dead to rights. He had, he had paid out, uh, I mean, pardon, the taxpayers paid out uh, the settlements on his harassment claims. So yeah, they were, there was a concerted effort uh, among certain Democrats to try to put some daylight between them and the party of Roy Moore, which at least at least a week ago, you could make a claim that it was the party of Roy Moore because the RNC had gone back on its rescinding of its endorsement of Roy Moore. They, they eventually did support Roy Moore. So I think they were trying to, to separate themselves from the Republicans in that sense. But I don't think that that's what swung this election. And I do think that um, it's much more posturing and showy than meaningful. Um, and, and it's particularly sickening as somebody who I don't self-identify as a conservative, um, but I was always adamant that if sexual harassment was a thing that existed at all, which in the post Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas age was supposed to mean a certain thing. It was supposed to mean in the workplace, at least power dynamics that were so severe, not just, uh, you know, somebody who's relatively on your uh, plane, but the power dynamic between say a clerk and a big lawyer or the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, and a 22-year-old intern, uh, I thought that that's the, the behavior, Bill Clinton's behavior with Monica Lewinsky before he used the power of the presidency to destroy her life was bad. That, was, that certainly qualified as sexual harassment. But for 20 years, the mainstream uh, center-left and Democratic Party and Democratic Party-friendly media uh, idea was you are you, the only people that could possibly think that what Bill Clinton did was 
immoral, unethical, or possibly illegal are puritanical, sex-hating, Christian conservatives. And that's just bullshit. I'm sorry. Well, I'm, I'm a, speaking as a puritanical, sex-hating Christian conservative, <laughs> um, no, I am not. But I, I do remember very well what the, how they characterized Monica back in 1998. Yeah. It was uh, That hussy was just asking for it. Oh, look sure. at that gold digger. She, she just wanted to have sex with the president. Narcissistic, uh, how can, you know, how, narcissistic Looney Tunes, I believe, was Hillary oh, Clinton's yeah. quote. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the shift in narrative is, 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 is a little bit too transparent and opportunistic for me to take it entirely seriously. I got roasted um, the other day, a week ago, over on Twitter for making this exact point that, like, yeah, you know, it's not lost upon people who are capable of looking at – you know, power dynamics here that the Democrats are only really speaking out and removing people that they consider to be expendable without harming their actual political power. Al Franken is going to get replaced by some Democrat. John Conyers. It's the most democratic district in America, practically. <laughs> He's an old fossil who's barely there mentally, apparently, if, if you believe what, what were you saying? Uh, sorry, I, 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 I would just jump in, but uh, Pelosi, uh, in her ham-fisted defense of him, called him an icon when she yeah, an icon, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, an icon, indeed, but he's still, he's still expendable, all right? So what happens when um, you know, a senator – I'm trying to figure out somebody who can conceivably fit this bill, a male – Joe Donnelly, all right? Let's say he gets accused of sexual harassment credibly and you got a Republican governor there um, and, you know, are they going to force him out? No, 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 no. Then it's going to and has rights, due process, et cetera, et cetera. People are only doing this in situations where they're – it's the same with the Republicans. All the Republicans, the congressmen who are being pushed out now, those are all safe seats. Even in a wave, those are seats that are still going to – by the way, a wave is coming. But even in a wave, those are going to elect Republicans. Both sides are completely hypocritical about this right now. I have yet to see one counterexample at this point, and I suspect that I never will. You said the phrase, by the way, a wave is coming. Can you give us a brief uh, glimpse into your thought process there? Oh, yeah. The Republicans are going to get pasted in 2018. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> any, any, any surprises? Any places that where they were, you know, like, all right, so now Alabama, holy, holy crap, has a Democratic senator. Anything that so, big? Like, I mean, OK, OK. Yeah. Were you, you going to say you go first? Uh, just, I mean, like Senate, 30 seats. What, what are we talking about here? Okay, well, of course, there are two questions to ask. The Senate and the House. The House is something that is uh, probably worth taking on its own terms because the House is much more susceptible to what you would call sort of the, the aggregate, the, the general ballot, um, you know, nationwide. So if you have a nationwide sort of like, you know, you poll, you know, voters all across the country from California all the way to Maine, and you say, who do you prefer? Who would you vote for as your congressman in the next election, Republican or Democrat? Well, currently, and a lot of these 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 generic ballot tests, the Democrats are leading by double digits, if not mid to high double digits, which is apocalyptically bad. Um, the sort of shorthand rule um, it, by a lot of people who I respect, guys like Dave Wasserman, who's um, his uh, works for Five Thirty Eight and other places, say that it's going to take something like a plus seven to plus eight Democratic lead on the generic ballot to retake the House. Right now, that's very possible. It could. Conceivably get worse. Um, so I think that the House is right now more likely than not to flip 
to the Democrats. Uh, that's obviously something that you have to talk about again and again, revisit as these numbers change. It's December of 2017. We don't have that vote for another year, practically. Um, the Senate is the other one. I, I'm much more bearish on the Democrats' chances of taking the Senate, even with Doug Jones's win today or the other day in Alabama, simply because that map is just so, so effing brutal for them. I mean, Arizona, with Jeff Flake retiring, that's one that they've got a real shot to take. Uh, Nevada, with Dean Heller, that's another one where they got a real chance to take it. Um, beyond that, so it, let's say they take those two. Then, hey, 51 to 49, right? Don't the Democrats retake the Senate? Well, if they run the table on those, then yeah, that's good. But then you have to deal with all the places where they are exposed. Incredibly red states where there are incumbents who aren't particularly popular. At, you've got to think that at least one of them or two of them are going to go down. Indiana, North Dakota, Montana, Ooh. Missouri. There are tons and tons of places in very Trump-leaning states that have Democratic incumbents that are going to be significantly challenged, in, even in a bad environment nationally for Donald Trump because the states differ from the uh, the national temper. So I still think the Democrats are disfavored to take the Senate, um, but a miracle could happen. Uh, it's it's definitely not out of the question, but I would say they've only got like a 30 to 33 percent, 33 to 33 percent chance of taking the Senate. Then again, Donald Trump only had a 30 to 33 percent chance of winning the presidency in 2016. And we know how that turned out. So it's definitely not over. Before we totally uh, leave the subject of, uh, of uh, Roy Moore and uh, maybe kind of drilling into um, why it is that people pull the lever for um, someone who's who to all outsiders seems like uh, just obviously a no brainer. Never vote for a person like that. When I was looking into this, um, all of the reporting or a vast majority of the reporting, especially on the ground, talking to people was that it came to one issue, which was abortion. Um, and uh, I know, Jeff, you and I uh, exchanged uh, at least one uh, uh, kind of tweet talking about this. Uh, at the time, uh, you're pro-life. I, I would describe my position as anti-prohibition, which sounds like a dodge, but that's kind of where I'm coming from on the issue. Um, Fair enough. Uh, and but um, uh, I guess my question is, uh, th there's, a, first of all, kind of like a, a semantic debate between uh, people analyzing this. On one hand, they'll say, yes, that was the issue. Um, Doug Jones had said in an interview with Chuck Todd that there shouldn't be any restrictions. He came out and had another interview afterwards. We don't necessarily need to parse all that kind of stuff. But let's, from the perspective of like a deeply felt reason, um, the split here is uh, people either say, yes, that is the reason or there will always be a reason. And that was just the one that they reached for. Uh, first, I would say, what is your kind of sense of that if you have a sense of that? What was it? What was it that Camille said earlier? All right, about how people are going to find a reason to rationalize voting, how they want to vote, despite the fact that they may consider themselves to hold like really dear, dearly held principles. So, I mean, look at me. I voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, even though he strapped that dog to the top of his car. <laughs> okay, that I mean, dog I found was a way around it. Standing <laughs> on a binder full of women on that car while he was cutting his friends' cutting hair. Cutting some poor kid's hair. Yeah. I mean. I, the monster. But I did it. I sucked it up and I voted for him. So people find a reason to rationalize things. And I, and I can't put myself, obviously, into the shoes of an Alabama voter, say, like an educated suburban Republican and evangelical Christian um, of whom there were very many in, in Alabama. And see what it was that made them either, you know, vote for Doug Jones 
or sit at home. But I think people sometimes can tell themselves like, hey, what, what, is abortion going to come up as a legislative issue in the next two years? Of course it's not. Um, is um, the Supreme Court going to hang on this? No, I don't think it will. Now, I also think that people um, – tell themselves this. I tell myself this, actually. I, I, in 2016, I, I obviously, I was a very kind of a vocal uh, uh, opponent of Donald Trump's. Were you, but were I you very much did, technically a, a never Trumper? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I still get a lot of flack from it from a lot of very angry conservative, ultra conservative Trump train kind of people. Uh, I was a never Trumper, but I also really um, have uh, no love lost for Hillary Clinton. And that's putting it mildly. I think you could accurately characterize it as loathing. I hate her. I've hated her since the 90s. So what did I do? I did what I think a lot of Republicans in Alabama did. I didn't vote for either of them. I think people tell themselves that abstention, and I like this. You know, what was it? Richard Linklater famously said that withdrawal and disgust is not the same as apathy. I said, I want none of this. I am not voting for either of these two people. I will not put my fingerprints on either of these two people. I refuse to own either of these two people. And I didn't vote for Hillary or for Trump. I just, I wrote in a third party candidate. I think a lot of Republicans in Alabama did the same thing with Doug Jones. They just either wrote, he, Doug Jones had 20, there were 24,000 right in votes, which is greater than the margin of victory that Doug Jones won by. Who do you think was writing those write-in votes? Do you think it was Democrats? Mm. Of course not. It was Republicans who were doing that. And how many others just stayed home that day and watched Netflix? I think that people will find a way, even despite the fact that abortion is such an important issue, and I think a lot of people will say, like, I don't want to cast a vote, an affirmative vote for a, you know, a pro-abortion candidate. They will say, well, okay, I'm not going to, you know, cast a vote for this, but I can just stay home and not participate. And I think that's a very valid way of handling that kind of a problem. Camille, you have become a, a pro-life activist now. Is that true? No, no. But but I do think there's something to be said for just like partisan tribalism, like driving outcomes and to just appreciate that that is happening at the state the local and at the national level, in many cases, I suspect at the local level, perhaps less so than at those other levels. Um, and, you know, the national narrative oftentimes um, between red team and blue team is, you know, those people are awful. Look who they voted for. Look who they're willing to support. Look what they're willing to endorse. And the, the narrative is generally that they support X bad candidate for all of the worst possible reasons. Um, when generally speaking, uh, I, I think that they, they find, they find reasons to support those candidates and they frequently, uh, find ways to just toss out those worst possible reasons Either they don't believe the terrible things you're saying about them. Um, or they, uh, they, they think that they don't really mean it. Um, and both of those things mm -hmm. are, are happening on a regular basis. And it's, it's easy, it's easy to get really pessimistic about, you know, our politics when we, when we think that the guy standing next to us is all sorts of terrible things, he's the worst possible monster. Um, but I would encourage you to get pessimistic about your politics because most people don't actually care about their politics in a serious way. They yeah. didn't arrive at their convictions because they thought about this deeply. Um, and plenty of the rest of them are staying home. Some of them are doing it for just cause like me. Um, and others <laughs> are totally apathetic. 
<laughs> can, Others are totally apathetic, and I, I support I support both things. Can we um, have a, a uh, person sitting in your underwear watching Netflix? Can we have uh, just a quick uh, round here, starting with Camille? Uh, who is the most despicable person that you've ever voted for? <laughs> I know this one. I got an easy answer. Okay, here. go, ahead, Jeff. Go. Oh, Ted Cruz. I voted for him in the primary. Oh, I hate Ted Cruz with an abiding passion, but uh, I mean, he's not a monster. He's no, just you're a monster. He's personally owed. Oh, I'm a monster. Well, but but we knew that going into yeah. the show. Oh, uh, but yeah, I find Cruz to just be personally odious in every way. I don't like his political actions. I don't like his personality. But in the Illinois primary in 2016, he was your one choice if you wanted to try to stop Donald Trump in any way. So, yeah, I did it. I made my wife do it, too. And she gave me the business for it for days afterwards. She said it made her feel dirty having to cast a vote for Ted Cruz. You I made your wife? kind of patriarchy you're running out there, pal. Uh, well, I just explained it to her. It's like, you want to stop Trump, right? So if you got to stop Trump, this is what you got to do. You know, we could dump Cruz later maybe or something like that. But we got to stop Trump. And that's that's how I managed to convince her. But, yeah, she wasn't thrilled about having to cast a vote for him either. Definitely the one that I regret the most. Fisher. All right. So this is uh, taking it back old school. But I used to have a policy. I'm no longer politically affiliated and I haven't been for a long time, but I used to have a policy of being whatever the opposite of what the president was. So in 2004, I was a Democrat and, and, and I did that because I wanted to vote in primaries. And left with and I, and I was much more hawkish in 2004 than I am now. I was personally affected by 9-11. I s regretfully supported the Iraq war in 2003. I didn't have any pull, uh, but I confess. So that's why I voted for in the 2004 Democratic oh, primary no. Oh, no. for Joe Lieberman, oh, who I absolutely loathed. Joe I loathed him at the time. On every social issue, he's a censor, he's a drug warrior, he is he is abominable in every way, and I knew it at the time, but I was I was hawkish in March that of two thousand four. Is nasty. Yeah, I and I, you I, dare I wear it. Camille's chair and say that I am stunned. I, Camille appreciates uh, naked honesty and and he has a power of forgiveness, I'm sure. So that's uh, true. Camille. All true. Uh, do you do you want to confess, Camille? I abstain from elections so frequently. That I mean, it it does me it does me great pleasure to be able to say my best and my worst vote is uh, Ron Paul for president. So there, um, I'm not I'm not ashamed of it at all. Feel pretty good about it. Also but, maxed out my contribution. Then why is it the worst? The reporting on that is a little weird. Um, well, just just because there's a small there's a small pool to pull from. So you, that's all you get. You voted once um, in I your life. I did give money to John Kerry um, right, that one year. That's gross. So there's that. <laughs> that I suppose that's a little humiliating. Which year? I hope it was 2004. Exactly. Okay. At least it makes sense because that would have been bizarre. <laughs> Uh, I voted. Uh, I voted for the uh, libertarian dude who's actually really nice. I forget his name. I, I want to say it's Akeem Browder, but it could, it could be something else. Uh, fact check me in real time, Dan Beer, um, out there. By the way, we didn't shout out Dan Beer. I'm sorry about that, but that's Anthony's fault. Um, <laughs> sorry, but, Dan. Uh, Dan was a lot of help today. Uh, who uh, he was running for mayor of New York, if I'm not uh, mangling the facts here, and he was mostly known for, I think, attempting to hijack a plane. Well. Well, you know, the, the previous, I think before that, the libertarian candidate for for New York was Kenny Kramer, a.k.a. the real Kramer, the guy who Kramer from Seinfeld is based on. Oh, he was a libertarian uh, candidate for mayor in the early aughts. Uh, the one that I'm most embarrassed for on a um, on a presidential uh, level 
uh, I can't quite figure out which one, but I think it's uh, John Kerry in 2004 tops even my embarrassment for voting for Michael Dukakis Ooh. in 1988. And in both cases, <laughs> in my defense, the theory was I need to vote against George Bush. Hmm. Uh, but uh, the first one, it was I need to get a vote against him <coughs> because I believed, uh, you know, Hunter Thompson and everybody else in 1988 that like, uh, you know, we all know that Ron Ronnie Reagan is like Hitler. But George Bush is really he's it, worse in your defense. If I may come to your defense briefly, yeah. um, halfheartedly, is that Hunter Thompson was still writing pretty well in 1988. It was uh, uh, the generation generation swine was still a thing. He it was, was writing for the examiner back then. Yeah. Uh, uh, was, I had the uh, the fortune, which I won't bore us with uh, on this uh, podcast of uh, hanging out with him for a weekend in 1987 and in, in April, wow. a, uh, an extended uh, talk about like uh, not Glenn Livett. It was Glenn Fittich. What was it? Uh, no, it was wild Turkey. Anyway, so, so the recent experience affected your voting outcome. It, could have had some influence on it, and I and I uh, regret uh, all of it, but uh, but uh, not too much. Uh, Camille, I want to uh, uh, revisit a thing that you kind of referenced in passing, um, talking about uh, Roy Moore voters who didn't believe the media um, there, and I detected uh, a kind of a shrug emoji uh, coming out of you. Uh, from then, and maybe that was uh, just actually the fatigue of uh, just the world of uh, diaper shit that you're uh, currently uh, dealing with right now. Uh, but I wrote a piece about that uh, that this week uh, for the LA Times, kind of talking about some of the uh, the divide about the the approach to the way that we think about media um, is actually become a, a large part of our politics, uh, especially in this kind of on the on the Trump conservative uh, side. And Roy Moore is a predates Trump on this of kind of the the aspect of trolling being central to uh, organizing a political I identity. The trolling, you're, what you're trolling is the, the mainstream media in many senses or or what you think is the dominant culture of people who are condescending towards you. And I wanted just to kind of throw a headline in your face, uh, Camille, and see what you think about it because I recoiled from it and maybe you won't. Uh, this is before... Uh, the election uh, coming from the Federalist, who specializes in kind of this sort of media bash constantly. Um, and it is it's media's fault. I love that. It's just it's media's fault. Uh, <laughs> Seventy one percent of Roy Moore voters don't believe Washington Post allegations. What's just kind of like your first emotional reaction or factual reaction to that headline as a, a way of thinking about stuff? I mean, it, it would be nice if, if things like that were that easy to explain. Um, the, the fact is that most people aren't paying attention to the things that the media says anyways. They're not reading the paper or watching the news. Um, their inclination to disbelieve things about candidates that they like who are aligned with them. Um, I don't know that that's sort of the fault of the media. I do think, and we've talked about it a bit in the past, that there, in the current political environment, that there has been a, a fair amount of hysteria. And that hysteria, in many cases, has led to some, some shabby reporting. We saw some examples of that last week. Um, some mistakes being made that are pretty embarrassing. And in a moment like this, like those things become amplified. They are fodder for being able to, to say, see, I told you, um, we, we shouldn't trust those people. That's my first thought. 
having not read this piece at all. Uh, you really need to get on with it. Uh, Jeff, In uh, my, I have developed uh, uh, a, a, a vast new theory um, of uh, media criticism, two iron laws of media criticism. criticism. Uh, one is that institutional media criticism, the self-criticism stuff, the stuff that you're going to see from Brian Stelter uh, and that you saw this weekend on Reliable Sources when they did an entire segment that was pegged to how CNN screwed up um, its reporting about, uh, I think, the KT McFarlane, or no, some email that was coming through that Donald uh, Trump Jr. It, it, yeah, received. I, I saw it the that too. It was about, it was about the, uh, the email saying that Donald Trump had early access to WikiLeaks right. material. And so the way that Stelter, who I think is a good reporter and reliable sources, is a, is a, a, has been a useful show in, in the past, the way they dealt with it is that they dragged David Frum. Um, speaking of like Anthony Fisher's uh, problems in 2004, oh, David yeah. Frum, uh, Carl we, Bernstein. We were both Canadian in 2004. <laughs> we were all Canadians. Uh, uh, getting bombed by Jonah Goldberg uh, on the cover of, Na of National Review. Uh, but it basically, they had a bunch of people on there saying, you know what, you know, Trump is just using this anti media animus against us. And it's really important that we think, you know, remember what the, the media is doing uh, out there. So, one of my two iron laws of media criticism is that. That the stuff that comes from inside the belly of the beast inevitably trends towards pompous ass covering. Jeff, as someone who is outside of the belly of that beast, how right am I? I think you're very right. I, 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 first of all, I did my homework and I actually read your column once the show notes were sent to me. So I, I read your, your piece. I thought it was very good. And I it's unnecessary, but but true. Completely agree. You you actually didn't cover uh, what I thought was the most kind of face pulling, forehead slapping howler uh, of that whole exchange on CNN. And it wasn't just on CNN. It was on other places too, where they talked about like. Well, you know why you can trust the mainstream media? It's because, you know, we we make these horrible mistakes that, you know, crash markets, drive news cycles, cause real damage. But then we correct ourselves eventually. Well, OK, you know, talk about setting your standards pretty low there, uh, CNN, that that you should be aiming for a little higher than that. I think it's it's, it's abundantly obvious that the media, uh, when it comes to stories about Russia, Trump, Russia collusion in particular, uh, have had a, a really kind of transparently obvious blind spot that they're willing to just charge into any of these stories. They're juicy. They sort of they prove a point that every person making these reports kind of sort of believes in their heart anyway. So they're being far less careful about it. They're also being held hostage by sources that usually come from within either the intelligence community, but more often within the partisan, the democratic partisan community that are, you know, kind of targeted leaks that it's never been easier to manipulate a news cycle on this story <clears throat> than it is now because you have a media that is very much primed to believe the worst about Trump and that whole Russia story. Or just about Trump in general. And I get it. Trump is an odious figure. He's a clown. I, I, he's kind of, I still have trouble every now and then. I have to say, like, Donald Trump is the president of the United States? It, it blows my dumb cracker mind, Matt. <laughs> but I don't let it. I don't let it affect the way I react to the news, and I find the self um, 
the self-eulogizing, the, the apologias that come from the mainstream media to be kind of pathetic. And they, they never confront the fact that, yes, OK, yes, the media corrects things when they get them wrong. Good for that. Congratulations. You're not fucking gateway pundit. <laughs> Big pat on the back for that. All right. <laughs> you know, but you're not. But you're supposed to hold yourself to a higher standard than that and not make the mistake in the first damn place. On the show that Matt was referring to with David Frum, there was also Carl Bernstein, who was flailing around in his chair and has no shortage of things he's need to walk back or apologize for. But I really I want to introduce Camille uh, because I know Camille has opinions about Brian Stetler and reliable sources that probably diverge from yours, Matt. Yeah, Camille. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the show. The whole thing, the whole thing seems to feel a little, a uh, little pompous to me. Um, one of the things that I found most irksome uh, of late is a, a lot of the, the hand wringing about sort of the, the fake news meme, which is fake news is the, the phrase du jour uh, in 2017, uh, which has been co-opted by the president, was initially used to refer to Russian propaganda. It was obviously um, uh, turning the election in Donald Trump's favor, except not really. Um, and now it's used to refer to just sort of shoddy journalism, made up stories. Um, uh, there was this John McCain tweet um, earlier this week referencing a press freedom annual report about the record number of journalists that are in prison around the world. Uh, and oftentimes you'll see folks like Brian um, and various other journalists, prominent figures throughout, across the media landscape who talk about the way that Donald Trump talks about journalists, the way that he talks about the media, the way he attacks the media, and that this is endangering the lives of people um, who, who are doing this job, um, both here in the United States and according to John McCain on Twitter, um, the Press Freedom Annual Report shows from his standpoint that POTUS must understand that his harmful rhetoric only empowers repressive regimes to jail reporters and silence the truth. Mm. Um, it is a profound overstatement. Um, <laughs> it also robs the awful people um, in places like China, the world powers, um, of culpability for the disgusting things that they do, like actually locking up journalists for doing their jobs, for speaking truth to power, for taking real material risks. The truth of the matter is that CNN beating the drum um, on the Russia story or sort of rushing out um, some reporting on something that turns out to not really be true, making a, making a mistake, and mistakes will happen, but making a mistake uh, in, in pursuit of that, look, they, they're going for ratings. There's no one who really believes, um, and I, I hope not, because it's just that the likelihood of it is very low, um, that Donald Trump is actually going to incarcerate them. That's probably unlikely. Uh, for all of the sort of wrestling memes that get trotted out. It doesn't mean that it's not press freedom isn't important. It just means that there's something to be said for keeping the actual risks in perspective here in the United States um, and for not uh, conflating like the actual serious uh, risks that journalists run in other countries versus the, the risks that one runs here in the United States um, by exaggerating the significance of their work and and continuing to perpetuate the myth that they that they are all practitioners of this sacred order of journalism, completely objective. They're like Jedi in service of the in service of the truth. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they're knights in the crusade, and all they will do they'll bring us all the light. 
Um, and we just have to, we have to trust them. We have to revere them and we have to thank them for the great work that they do. Look, sometimes you'll get it wrong. Sometimes you'll get it right. You're not objective truth tellers. You are, you're, you're people who have perspectives. There is some subjectivity in the work that you do. And I think that, that we would all be better served, Brian included, by having a more serious, thoughtful um, engagement with journalists, one where we're critical of the work that they do um, when they're wrong, where we, we praise them when they get it right. When people do really great reporting, we do that too. Um, but we don't like pretend that they're high priests. Uh, that is a, that's a dangerous, uh, that's a dangerous position for us to put ourselves in. And I, I sometimes worry about the, the way that the, the, it's the recoil effect, I think, from Donald Trump's genuine odiousness um, to, to make everything else around him um, everything that stands in opposition to him somewhat sacred um, and every act of opposition uh, becomes pretty sacred and almost anything is acceptable. And we've seen how that works in a number of different contexts. The, uh, the- it's a shame. It's a shame that Moynihan isn't here because he would love my analogy, say that the, the only person better at self martyrdom than the mainstream media right now is Morrissey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, like yeah, Big Mouth strikes again. You know? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, you guys get it. But <laughs> he, did the show. he did the Smiths episode with us. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, 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 I almost kind of wonder why don't they have a more sense of humor about this? Yeah. You would be far more effective. Journalists would be far more effective if they took all this abuse they're getting from Trump and from like, you know, the, the right and from the Republican Party and from the administration and had fun with it. Because it's kind of funny how over the top the criticism can get at times from, you know, the Trump administration. They should just laugh it off and say, yeah, OK, why well, fine, whatever we screwed up. We'll do better next time. Don't get your britches twisted here. Um, but instead, you're right. They act as if like you are striking at the heart of freedom across the world and lives are now endangered in Turkey because of Donald Trump calling CNN fake yeah. news in a press conference. It's just a bunch of bunk. And I don't understand why they can't take themselves a little less seriously. So, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned the Smiths because uh, I just covered the uh, the story of Ken Friedman, the famous restaurateur who's now been accused of massive uh, uh, decades of sexual misconduct. He apparently made his fortune or began making his fortune as the manager of the Smiths. And um, yeah, just I didn't know that myself. I I, was well aware of Ken Freeman. But um, the the hand-wringing over fake news, uh, somebody in this conversation mentioned it, that it was mostly directed about Russian bots and what have you, but it was absolutely driven by... Hillary Clinton uh, and all of her supporters uh, who would, would were willing to go on the record about that uh, immediately after the 2016 election. That was where the, the, the term really came into the zeitgeist. And in classic Donald Trump fashion, when they, you know, when, when he found himself backed up against the wall, he would co-opt whatever... Um, the frenzy was in front of him. So he he sees Hillary Clinton the first few times she's willing to speak in public saying, you know, I it's not because I went didn't go to Wisconsin. It's not because I've, you know, never really won a campaign against a legitimate candidate ever. Uh, it's fake news that I lost this election. And Donald Trump and a lot of the people around him and a lot of his supporters were like, let's take that. Let's let you know, and they ran with that as anything that was 
critical of them, whether it was true or not. Now we're well past a year later, and as we've seen, CNN, who's done some good reporting, a lot of good reporting, has screwed up a lot of reporting and makes it really easy for when, when, whenever Donald Trump wants to have a tantrum, uh, it makes it these kinds of careless mistakes make it easy for him to say fake news. But the narrative uh, that we're we're seeing now, it's it's now it's now be, you know like narratives become narratives because they get repeated so often, and it's almost like an aside. Um, when we're talking about Turkey and any other autocratic regime saying it's because of Donald Trump that these dictators or quasi dictators are using the word fake news, the, the phrase fake news, but they they really miss the entire it's, it's only been a year that this narrative has taken place, but it's easy enough to track and it's kind of infuriating. Jesse Walker, our colleague over at Reason, uh, uh, your colleague, over my, our, yeah, our, our global. <laughs> spiritual, I love Jesse. I love you, Jesse. Spiritual colleague, <laughs> I, I mean to say, over its uh, reason, uh, was in the moment uh, critical of uh, of that when it was still a kind of a Hillary side uh, talking points. Like this is going to be used against you really soon. Well, let's watch it happen. A uh, couple of uh, examples that blew my freaking mind. Um, I mean, uh, I totally agree with Jeff. Like, just it. It's like getting hit by a pitch. Don't rub it don't just walk to first base like walk and like yeah you know what that's the price i get to play in the big leagues i just got hit by a pitch and i'm on first base you go to hell uh no so trump tweets out some garbage about don lemon uh who is not the world's best uh anchor on cable <laughs> news or Dave Weigel, for that matter. Well, right. we'll, get to, we'll get to Weigel in a second hold your fire uh, uh, hold your fire <laughs> um and like you know, you could you could just sort of say, eh, presidents being the president again and like don't rub it and walk to first base. No, CNN releases via Brian Stelter's uh, Twitter feed, I might add, um, uh, following in the footsteps of his boss, David Carr, who's someone who uh, uh, his former boss, the New York Times, as a media critic, critic who's justifiably revered, although he wouldn't survive the Me Too universe very well, uh, given what he uh, admitted to uh, in his uh, great memoir, The Night of the Gun. Uh, but uh David Carr became most famous not because of his years, his decades of being like this alternative journalist who championed outsider voices, including my own in a very small moment, like uh, 20 years ago, which I will always appreciate him for. Um, but he went from that to being the in-house New York Times media critic who became most famous for his role in that one documentary where he was shouting about those whippersnappers at Vice News. You don't understand that, you know, New York Times people are out there on the front lines in war-torn countries and this kind of stuff. He got domesticated. And he also was mentoring Brian Stetler that, in that exactly, documentary. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so anyways, the tw and on Twitter feed of Brian Stetler after this, uh, and we're all pronouncing his last name wrong. I don't care. Um, I think I got it right. Uh, it's There's an L before the Stettler. T. Stetler. No, there's an L before the T. Go check it out. Fact check me. Stelter. It's, it's Stelter. Stelter. It like no Damn. one wants it to be Stelter because that uh, it's just weird. And Charles Manson. Anyways, so <laughs> CNN says <laughs> he compared it to Manson. I did, and I'm not wrong. In a world, <laughs> this is their response. I'll, I'll allow it. Stelter. Allow it. Damn. This is this Man, is in response to stupid Donald Trump tweeting about Don Lemon fake news kind of stuff. In a world where bullies torment kids <laughs> on social media <laughs> to devastating effect. On a regular basis, with insults and name-calling, I'm pounding the desk. It is sad to see our president engaging in the very same behavior himself. 
that's enough. But then one more sentence. Leaders should lead by example. Shut the fuck up. No, seriously, shut the fuck up. I'm sobbing. Shut the fuck up. I got chills when you, when you read that. I, I mean, yeah, that was like... Don Lemon yeah. does not deserve that level of seriousness. I could I could hear the violins playing in the background, like someone singing in the arms of an angel. Like the whole thing that. It just really it really moved me. I mean, these people with their massive salaries living in one of the most expensive cities on earth on television every single night, like they they desperately need our help and our support in their fight against the, the most horrible man in the history of the United States. Um, and they're so selfless. They're so selfless. They won't shut up about it. So thank God for them. I feel, uh, I feel Camille's getting so a little short. I, I think yeah. this is probably a good point to, because especially since it was just brought up, um, our, our, our friend, comrade, colleague occasionally and former fifth column guest, Dave Weigel, uh, broke some news by tweeting some fake news. Um, <laughs> Immediately, not immediately, maybe 30 minutes later, deleting it, apologizing, but it raised the ire of the president of the United States. And um, for those that don't know the context, uh, Dave got probably from somebody else's feed, saw a, a Trump rally sparsely attended in Pensacola, Florida, made a mocking joke about how it wasn't attended well. Somebody corrected him. He corrected. He deleted the original tweet as as a as a good uh, political reporter following the loosey goosey ethics of Twitter would do. He made sure that people knew that he screwed up um, and then moved on. And about a half hour later, the president, you know, gave one of his 280 characters screeching many caps uh, tweets uh, and all hell broke loose. And f within hours. Our pal Dave was a hero to all of journalo, Politico Journalo uh, Twitter. Um, I even tweeted in support of him because I did find it particularly absurd that the, the president was making such a big deal about this. But I know um, Camille has a, a, a different uh, take on this, and I'd, uh, I'd love to get that. Yeah, just keep keep throwing all of those things at Camille. Yeah. Let, let him come, come in with his contrarian uh, takes. Um, look, I, I like Dave. I think Dave is, I think Dave is good, um, at his job. He's an honest dude. Um, I don't, I don't have any reason to believe that he would have knowingly tweeted that out with the expectation that it was wrong. Um, what I, what my initial thought though was, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't retweet some shit like that unless I'd gone and personally verified it because I am more concerned about being wrong, um, than I am virtually anything else when it comes to like public commentary on things like this. Um, and I mean, look, I, I think Donald Trump has a track record of being dishonest uh, about these sorts of things. So it becomes very easy to believe that in any instance like this, he might be, he might be misrepresenting the truth. Uh, in which case one doesn't even feel the need to confirm that that tweet you're getting ready to retweet is uh, is true. Everything becomes believable. Um, but it is still your responsibility, journalism person, to make certain that stuff is true. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, some net neutrality memes that were flying around the Internet um, shortly after uh, shortly after a uh talked about his plan to get rid of the uh, Obama era 
um, net neutrality regulations. Um, but you kept seeing all these things from Portugal, um, where things were like rated and um, denominated in dollars, um, <laughs> indicating that there were various other services that you wouldn't get unless you paid extra. Uh, except it turns out that most of those memes were either not what people suggested they were um, or completely fraudulent. Uh, but that didn't stop them from catching fire. Th- those memes weren't in Portuguese. This is it probably a pretty good clue that they weren't entirely <laughs> accurate? Uh, the FCC voted three to two on partisan grounds um, after a process that some people called um, unnecessarily secretive or opaque to undo the vote that the FCC made uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, three to two on partisan grounds after a process in which people said was unnecessarily uh, secretive or opaque uh, regarding net neutrality uh, regulations. And I'll just read a couple of the headlines here. We've been talking about CNN a lot. Uh, They had a great headline banner. End of the internet as we know it. (laughs) 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 Sorry. Sorry, I'm trying to keep it together. Unbelievable. Tim Kane. Tim Kaine, uh, who I think ran for vice. Speaking of Joe Lieberman, God, I'm never going to let you forget this, Fisher. This is like I, this I, is, I wear this it. is great. I, I love I love talking about this kind of stuff. I'm 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 a, I'm a former Catholic, so I shame wow. is a big part of my personality. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, Tim Kaine went uh, full on uh, like I'm going to get the 280 character poetry. So thanks to line break space, this vote it just went on and on and on and on, uh, and finally horrible step backwards for for a free and open internet, which is kind of funny. And Bernie Sanders and the Koch brothers, uh, unbelievable. Uh, Dave Weiner, a guy who's been a, a, a great character in kind of for the last twenty five years about the new kind of internet world, was like this is all about the Koch brothers. Um, enriching themselves by cutting their taxes and then they're going to privatize uh, Social Security. I went back and looked uh, because I had to check myself before all this. Um, Like, how did we talk about, how did Reason, not we, sorry, Anthony, um, (laughs) uh, talk about this, but how do people who were against the original regulations that are uh, uh, colloquially known as uh, net neutrality regulations react to it. I mean, I edited an issue of Reason that came out in 2015 with, uh, you know, the uh, the Gadsden flag and the snake saying, don't tread on my internet. Very long pieces about this kind of stuff right before this decision was made. And it was made in a way that was against most of the uh, sentiment there that we had been talking about um, at Reason. I went back and looked at Peter Suderman's piece uh, after this happened. February of 2015, and it was like, you know what? This is probably going to have some unintended consequences. This is going to, you know, it's going to hurt probably broadband development going forward and the investment and this kind of stuff. It wasn't crazy, uh, and all the internet has been all day long is how democracy got raped in the face. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 it really the steamrolling has has it, it the 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 rhetoric to say has really increased. It, it's, it's been going for a while and now it's just, I hate to use the word because I know now the word actually has problematic, uh, sexist connotations, which I know after my time as a contractor at Buzzfeed is that hysterical <laughs> is a problematic word. Are you serious? <laughs> hysterical. God forbid we you should can't say hysterical, anything. but 
the it today you really you really have to know greek to get what the problematic con, you know issues <laughs> can we just say are, hymen but, wow. is that the uh, Hy, I mean, hymen i'm i'm probably going to jump out a window now that you said hymen exactly hysteros yeah. is i think yeah. the greek word for uterus yeah. that's why uh, it, it, exactly it's, it's, <laughs> thank you yeah it's true always <laughs> learning Always learning. All right, so we were talking. We were talking about the hysterical overreaction. Sorry, Anthony. Uh, yeah, not not at all. Um, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I, I I had a mini viral tweet today from from some nobody that I I won't uh, I won't. Uh, that's that's not a that's not a thing, Fisher. There's no such thing as a mini viral tweet. I got into the thousands. The all right, but uh, I, I I just kind of mocked a, a somebody who didn't have much pull. But here's the reason I I mocked it. I felt it was it was worth it, is because it was going viral because. Questlove from The Roots uh, retweeted it, and I'm a big Roots fan. That's why I follow Questlove. Um, and it said, if we lose net neutrality, you can say goodbye to these jobs. YouTuber, streamer, movie stars, actors, singers will lose a lot of money. And you can say hello to more suicide rates, more bullying, having to book flights in store, what? in store, shopping in stores, travel for movies. And I've checked this person's feed and I'm fairly convinced it's not a troll. It's not satire. It's, it really, wow. it's, you know, and, and, and again, it was, it, this is, this is not a famous person. This is not a person that even appears to be, it, it appeared to be a young aspiring rapper who Questlove retweeted. I don't know how Questlove got a hold of this thing, but it was going viral when I picked it up. I, I it wasn't like I was picking on a, uh, you know, a plebe or, or anything like that. And, um, the, uh, the hysteria today that I've seen now from people who really should know better, even people who are, are much more, you know, technically inclined than I am, uh, that this this rule that literally the way they sold it under the Obama administration in 2015 was to prevent cable companies who everybody hates from ruining the Internet. We need to regulate the Internet as a utility. Nobody, nobody's remembering that now. All right. But that was the way it was sold. We need to mm -hmm. regulate the Internet as a utility. Now, I ask anyone listening, do you love your utility? Do you love your do you love Con Edison? Do you love yeah. the, do you, do you they, love they don't, they don't love these things. Yeah. They don't love these things, but they don't they don't believe that it would be a good thing if there was someone who was able to run up the price on their water or their power indefinitely in pursuit of profits. And I think, look, you know, on this on this program, we had a GPI not too long ago on the program and he, he came on to discuss these rules um, that he was proposing or the rule change anyways, that he's proposing um, before, before they were enacted. And we had a conversation and there were a lot of folks who were actually upset. Like we got a ton of uh, unhappy uh, messages back from people who listen to the podcast, because there are plenty of people who listen, who are very concerned about this issue. Uh, and they, they thought this, that our conversation was a bit too one-sided. I'm sure they'll be very unhappy with this too. So I'll try to placate some of them. There is an argument to be made that there, is, there are monopoly service providers, that there are regional monopolies amongst broadband internet carriers, um, and that those regional monopolies create serious problems for folks who only have, say, one company that they can turn to for their internet service. And in a world where they're not 
obliged, the carriers aren't obliged to treat all data as the same, that they might start doing really nefarious things like preventing you from accessing content that's provided by someone who they don't favor, um, or perhaps charging you more to gain access to something like Netflix. This is this is possible. It's possible that that could happen. Um, the fact that it, it kind of sort of hasn't really happened in the past isn't necessarily um, an iron an iron law doesn't create an iron law that this will never happen in the future. But what I think is important and worth considering for people is that there are plenty of technical things about the way that the internet works that you may or may not understand that at, at some level network management requires that information be prioritized in different ways that it's already the case that most content on the internet isn't really treated equally in, in various respects. Um, but that there really is a fair amount of competition when it comes to internet service provisioning and where there isn't competition, we should probably try to find ways to get additional competition into the marketplace. And the question that I keep asking folks is whether or not they suspect that net neutrality rules are going to make internet networks like, more competitive more dynamic, um, or if they are likely to create a situation where the, the networks are perhaps there's less investment in, in internet networks. And it's not obvious to me that there'll be no investment. I, I suspect this isn't the end of the world if you get net neutrality, um, but it's always hard to know what you're giving up. And there are necessarily going to be trade-offs when you institute a broad regulatory regime that says to internet service providers, um, many of whom benefited tremendously by, from government-granted monopolies in, in various regions. So it's, this is somewhat complicated, somewhat dicey. That's the key point, though, Camille, just to pull that out, though, is that, that people in this conversation, it's maximalist. It's either mm -hmm. or. And, and nobody is considering that each action is comes with trade-offs. Uh, it, it, that is literally, it's literally lost from the conversation. You, you, you are either a tool of the ISPs um, and Ajit Pai in the last few days, which we will get to, is not doing anyone any favors who is <laughs> might be sympathetic to the idea that uh, net neutrality, the, the way the Obama administration imp imposed it, is not the greatest thing in the world. But that just the, just the concept that we can have this discussion and discuss it with trade-offs that if you do such a thing, you might lose such a thing. If you fail to do such a thing, this is what is, a, is at risk. We're, we, we don't, this is lost completely from the conversation. And, and as we saw CNN's headline, you know, and if CNN is, you know, you know, certainly Democratic Socialists of America isn't going to line up and say, I want to know what that CNN headline is. So they're fairly centrist. They're saying end of the Internet as we know it. You know, it's 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 fraught with terror. We can't right. have a conversation based on the trade offs. Anthony, can I also make a point? I actually rather ostentatiously tweeted today that, like, I don't really know much about net neutrality and I don't really care that much one way or another. You know, you, you all can attack me for this, but I'm not going to pretend to have a strong opinion about it. And uh, predictably, I got attacked for it. I got people telling me I got people DMing me telling me I should shoot myself in the head. True story. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I really, really just, just like you ignorant DM. shit. I hope I hope you effing die. I hope you shoot yourself in the head with a shotgun. I was thinking to myself man it's really hard to shoot yourself in the head with a shotgun like <clears throat> you got to use your toe maybe to like you know like it worked the trigger Kurt anyway, did it. Uh, 
I did a little looking into it. He was talented. And I have a backing. I have a, a grounding, a legal grounding in network industries and antitrust to begin with. Oh. So I understand this much about it, that one way or another and, – and Camille was making this point um, – but I, it really deserves to be emphasized that people, the, the maximalists who are screaming that this is the end of the world as we know it, don't seem to grasp that even with this new rule change, the FCC, and that, that means any FCC, not the FCC as run by Ajit Pai, but uh, any FCC in subsequent years, uh, which presumably could also just as easily you know, change the rule back, have regulatory solutions available to them if the sorts of problems that the doomsayers are talking about in terms of metering and regulating access to information and data actually pop up just the same way that they do when it comes to regulating telecoms or, uh, you know, the old phone companies. It's not like we've just declared the Internet to be the Wild West and, you know, the robber barons can now move in and start murdering people and sucking up all the assets and holding them hostage. No, <laughs> we've, we've gone back to the way the Internet was in 2014 or 2015. 2015. It's really not that different. Regulatory options are still available. It's not like the FCC just said, now we can never touch the internet again. And I find it farcical that people don't acknowledge the nuance there. Wait, breaking news here, according to my Twitter feed on the top, Joy Reid, who is, I think, Camille's favorite MSNBC broadcaster, uh, Mm. just tweeted. No, no, that's Chris Hayes. Oh, right. Okay. Um, Just retweeted uh, um, her friend, uh, Sarah Kenzior. Oh, no. Oh, is that bad? Oh, yeah. What did she say? Uh, Who says, quote, gutting net neutrality is a death knell for the resistance. Oh, the resistance. Can I ask, does Joy Reid still believe that two of Donald Trump's ex-wives were from (laughs) Soviet satellites? (laughs) Um, Yeah, even though one was from Slovenia and one was from the former Czechoslovakia. Yeah, I, I, um, well, you wouldn't believe how many people, uh, rushed into my DMs to tell me Joy Reid anecdotes after that. Uh, None of which, unfortunately, I can repeat, but she's got a history of this. Thankfully, don't repeat that. But Fisher, you wanted to, to, uh, we, you know, we we had Ajit Pai on here. What, what, what? Get in there, Camille, get in there. Can I say something before we we go away from that? It's Um, my podcast, Camille. (laughs) There's something, uh, called the general conduct rule. Oh, yes. The the current in the not the current, but the previous iteration of uh, sort of Internet regulation, the net neutrality regime um, that I I think has been under discussed um, and that not enough people have an appreciation for essentially the standard by which regulators can, for the good of the realm, uh, make rules about pretty much anything. Yep. <laughs> related to, to internet services so long as they deem it appropriate. And like I'm, I'm describing something that sounds incredibly vague because it is incredibly vague. The, the mm-hmm. prior regime, the actual way that net neutrality was instituted by the Obama administration was not like a single sort of line that said, oh, not the Obama administration, but the Obama FCC, but not a single line that said, hey, treat all data the same way. That would be one thing. Um, there were any number of really crude compromises that were made, and this general conduct rule was was there um, as well. And you know, there's there's something that I didn't see until after our conversation with the Jeep that I wish I'd seen before. I um, mean, it's Barack Obama, and I believe October of last year, effectively talking about 
what we need to do in the era of fake news that we find ourselves mm-hmm. in, where people are finding it difficult to know what's true and what's not true. And you know, he said, um, we're going to have to rebuild within the wild, wild west of information flow some sort of curating function that people agree to. There has to be, I think, some sort of way in which we can start to sort through information that passes some basic truthiness test. There has to be, I think, some sort of way in which we can uh, sort through information that passes some basic uh, truth, truthiness tests uh, and, uh, and, and those that we have to discard uh, because they just don't, don't have any basis in uh, anything that's actually happening in the world. And that's hard to do, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's going to be necessary. It's going to be possible. Now, one might think that that sounds like censorship. Um, of course, the president goes on to clarify and say, I, I think the answer is obviously not censorship. I think the answer is obviously not censorship, but it's, it's creating places where people can say this is reliable. Um, but that qualification ain't good enough. Because that's exactly what that is. Absolutely. Like establishing a truth in yeah. a standard yeah. is censorship. I, I tried. If someone is concerned about Donald Trump, if they're concerned about this administration, then, hey, cupcake, it's worth acknowledging that giving a bureaucratic entity like the FCC, as nice a guy as Ajit is, this arbitrary authority to curtail conduct on the Internet that bureaucrats find problematic, probably not a good idea. Certainly not the sort of thing that actually gets you internet freedom. So the general conduct rule, um, it's no longer a thing. Um, That doesn't mean there are no problems, but that was on the books before and it no longer is. And there's something to be said for an environment where people are screaming like lunatics about something they they only vaguely understand, including my sister, who literally just sent me a text (laughs) and asked me if net neutrality is something she should be afraid of. (laughs) Afraid. 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 And, and, And I imagine this is the first time she's done this to you, right? Um, no, it's routinely calling to ask me if something Donald Trump is involved but in, net neutrality, in form yeah. is, is something she should be concerned so, about. But yes, yeah, net neutrality. Never had a conversation about that before. Here, here's the thing. I come from the generation that um, I was a Howard Stern fan. I'm a New Yorker growing up. Uh, his his first major box set was called Crucified by the FCC. By the FCC. All right. Yes. All right. I also was a big fan of the movie called Pump Up the Volume, starring Christian Slater, where he's a teenage pirate radio DJ, and the enemy in that movie is both the corrupt uh, admi- uh, administration of his school and the FCC. And he makes the point in that movie that isn't it amazing that five unelected bureaucrats are in charge of free speech in America? He literally says those lines in that movie. And I'm just now imagining 27 years later, old as hell, uh, that the FCC is now the sympathetic figure (laughs) to the youth of America. To cut in, to cut in, because you have uh, (laughs) other bits to say about this. Cory Booker, the senator from the great state of New Jersey, Uh, today tweeted out, this is an outrageous assault on a fair and open internet. Mark my words, this decision will not last. Does he say it will not last because he's going to introduce legislation that will overturn it, that will actually update the Telecommunications Act of 1934? No, what he says is we will reverse it by 
winning future elections. Exactly. And he will be the one to win that future election, I'm sure, is what the subtext of that text uh, tweet is. He won Alabama for the Democratic Party. <laughs> the subtext, he's running. That's all you need there to you know. That's a, that's a very Dave Weigel tweet there. Uh, but just to, just to finish that uh, FCC point, though, th- let's remember that uh, the FCC, like I had to correct several of my colleagues today uh, that the FCC is not a branch of, gov- of of elected government, that they are bureaucrats, that they are all appointed and they are always by design three two divided by the Democrats and Republicans based on whoever is the president and that the you know where, where these hearings were was not on Capitol Hill. It's it's really chilling that they have this much authority over our telecommunications, over free speech, and that the ostensible liberals, the 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 hashtag resistance, want to expand the authority of government to give them that much more power. But let's let's remember the FCC's greatest hits. Just in my waking lifetime, the FCC literally. Several iterations of the FCC hounded Howard Stern off of terrestrial radio. The reason he's on Sirius XM right now and has been for more than a decade is because he was fined and his employers were fined tens of millions of dollars. And he never once said the F word. He never once did anything that, you know. There, there are there are so many examples of scatological humor that went way past the line of anything he ever did. It was literally several vendettas, both under Democratic and and Republican administrations, and they literally hounded. They made it impossible for him to do business. But let us also not forget the completely fake outrage over the Janet Jackson nipple slip. Yes. All right. That now now this is this now everybody hated the FCC and again. Again, in 2004. Cover of the Nation uh, magazine, whatever you call it, the fortnightly, was a Jeff Jarvis piece, a friend of mine, uh, uh, and my professor, I think he is now. Uh, CUNY. Saying, CUNY, whatever. It's not the same. It's, <laughs> everyone here. But it was like, uh, fuck the FCC, yeah. uh, the Nation. So yeah. that was their official position, more or less. Yeah. And, 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 years and it was, and here, let's remember how the FCC functions. The reason the FCC reacts so harshly on these situations is because by their own rules, they need to take every single complaint seriously. Do you, did you hear me? Like in the, in the era of Twitter <laughs> and social media, any human being or any fake human being who complains the FCC is obligated by their own charter to take seriously. This is the entity that people are demanding have complete carte blanche over the internet. This is madness to me. I've never, I've never forgiven the FCC uh, for getting all those really great uh, versions of rock songs taken off the radio in, in the wake of the Janet Jackson <laughs> thing. Like, remember the old, you know, Who Are You by the Who? Mm-hmm. You know, yep. Roger Daltrey saying, Who the fuck are you? They right. used to play it on the radio all the time. Oh, yeah. And after Janet Jackson, no, they had to edit that. Ah, God, cut the guts out of that song. All kinds of things were cut were cut out. Like, um, I, I swear to God, I heard M- Moby, you know, the most milk toast of electronica out there. Uh, he had that stupid song with Gwen Stefani. Um, I think it was called West Side or South Side. Uh, but there's a line, I'm I'm cruising with my sidearm. I heard the, the word sidearm muted. What? On, yeah, absolutely. 
you know, I mean, it was probably in the in the wake of a post uh, shooting hysteria, but it, it absolutely jarred me because I, I I also remember De La Soul when they had one of their reunions in 2000. Um, uh, Buster Rhymes had a guest lyric on one of the songs, and he said, "If you've never been shot or stabbed in Brick City, go ooh ooh ooh." They bleeped out "shot" or "stabbed." <laughs> <laughs> Those filth mongers, yeah. De La Soul. I mean, Everybody knows yeah. they're one of the dirtiest can acts I, out yeah. there. Go. Can I push? Can I push you guys to to do uh, a little bit more uh, fan service, though, with respect to all the many people who are deeply concerned uh, about keeping the internet free and open. Um, of course, we know that we're only retreating to the rules from a couple of months ago. Um, but either way, but let's, let's at least indulge them because I, I do think that the concern is a legitimate one. The internet is sort of the single most important um, innovation that we've had in the past 30 years. It is the principal driver of our prosperity, of innovation, uh, of, of wealth creation. You forgot um, the room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's important. Um, and I think that all of us generally agree I that I it totally is a do. very good idea for the internet landscape to exist in such a way that people can pretty much get to whatever the hell they want. Um, certainly no state censorship, which is something that's easier to do when the government is in charge of it. But let's set that aside for a second. But we also want a marketplace that is sufficiently robust that people can gain access to the internet um, and not have to worry that they won't be able to, to get to the information they want to. Um, is, is anyone in, engaged in this conversation at all concerned about the, the, the lack of competition in the landscape, the lack of competitiveness? Um, and, and is there something that we ought to be doing from your I'm, standpoint? I'm concerned about that. But as I said earlier, there are already standard remedies available in antitrust and in network industries law that can address those sorts of things without you know, any sort of special blanket net neutrality legislation. I mean, <clears throat> again, I, I, I my general take is I'm skeptical of any legislation that is being pushed so uh, rapidly by the ISPs because, you know, screw them, right? I'm as skeptical as them as anybody else. But on the other hand, uh, we have the same remedies available to us that we always did after today that we did before today or before 2014 for that matter. And it's just a matter of time until those start being applied uh, if things actually get to the point where, yeah, yeah, we're, we're having you know, choke points are being instituted by monopoly uh, lack of competition when it comes to internet service provision. So I'm just, I'm just. Everybody's expecting that, like, oh, well, now the net neutrality rules have been repealed. You know, Xfinity, Comcast is going to prevent me from going to Netflix unless I want to pay forty extra dollars a month. Well, we'll see what happens when they try to do that because I guarantee you, there's going to be a legislative <laughs> reaction to it. This is the way the country works. If they try that stunt, there's going to be a backlash, and it's not going to go well for them because there's going to be such an outcry that w within a matter of months, if not weeks, it's probably going to get rolled back. I would also uh, just add, uh, after we interviewed Ajit Pai or released the interview of that uh, two weeks ago, it was the, uh, the day that he announced uh, that this day today was going to be happening. Um, Nick Gillespie at Reason also interviewed Ajit Pai and asked him the important question, like, how do we judge two years from now whether this was a good idea or not? Um, 
go read those ant answers. Part of it is like, hey, are we investing more? Is there more net investment in this period of time to build out competition out there uh, for internet access uh, than there had been in the previous two years? So there are markers out there. Um, he has a belief, and it is a belief because you can only sort of guess um, that if you walk back here from a preventative kind of uh, uh, precautionary principle uh, regulation that there's going to be more people coming in to help things out. And he's motivated by a desire um, uh, to actually bridge what uh, sometimes euphemistically perhaps has been called the digital divide over the, over the years. Um, so measure it, look at it. Two years from now, if it gets if it's terrible, you're not, you know, win a different election, have different people. Lord knows, maybe actually pass legislation in Congress. But that's going to probably take a generation before anyone <laughs> ever does anything like that. Um, but uh, there are ways to judge these things. And I think there's there's a presumption of not just bad faith, but uh you know your your knuckles are are dragging on the ground with with like bile coming out of them because you want the corporate corporates to make you enslaved. I mean, it's just it's not a normal conversation that people are having around uh, this topic. Um, but uh, that's a good segue as much as anything else here at the ninety five minute mark. Mm -hmm. um, my God, we've been going. Jeff, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for Camille. He deserves all of this, every last minute of it. But uh, we have. <laughs> I'm not sleeping, anyways. We have a regular feature here on this uh, podcast called "Some yes. Some Idiot Wrote This." Mike, you do your homework, unlike everybody else in the world of podcasts. But uh, Anthony has a little "Some Idiot" for Mr. Ajit Pai, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, over here, I'll get to that. And and, and in, in doing so, because as the producer, I did fail Jeff and not prepare him for some idiot who wrote this. Uh, but if you've in the next few minutes, uh, if you've got a some idiot wrote this that you want to throw out there, please do. Uh, so yes, uh, Ajit Pai, who uh, I'm delighted that he was a guest on our show, and I generally respect him and his position on uh, a light touch on internet regulation. But he did something that deserves to be dragged. And it, it, it is, uh, it's not necessarily somebody who wrote this, but he participated in a production uh, for The Daily Caller produced by Benny Johnson, who I've met and have been friendly with. But let's be clear, and he hasn't even denied these things, is a serial recidivist plagiarist. He has been fired from several companies for plagiarism. And he is now, you know, scraping it together at the Daily Caller, producing hashtag content. And uh, he was able to put Ajit Pai and a handful of other people in front of green screens to show how hip they are and how hip it is to be against uh, net neutrality. And they did something like the Harlem Shake, which is I don't even know how many years old of a Internet meme, but it's old. It's not hip. Um, and, <laughs> and, and a bunch of other things. And it's disappointing that Chairman Pai uh, would, one, choose to go on this really fringe and terrible media outlet. I'm going to say that plainly. Uh, and two, work with this person of questionable ethics and three appear alongside one of the performers who is a out public Pizzagate truther, um, conspiracy theorist of the lowest sort, uh, and that 
you know, on a macro level that Chairman Pai has chosen to make his extraordinarily controversial legacy defining position only towards people who are already agreeing with him, not even trying any outreach, not even trying to debate people who could parry with him, who I actually believe he could best in an argument or at least make a convincing argument. He is deciding to go. They can't even they can't even parry with him. (laughs) It's just crazy. They can't parry with him. But yeah. And and yet. He's doing the Daily Caller with Benny Johnson on a stupid, unfunny, trolley video that is going to convince nobody and only and alienate people who were even slightly on the fence. I know you're a listener. I know a good many of your staff are listeners. I really do appreciate that you came on the show. I support your you know, general take that you've articulated very well many times that a light touch is the best thing for the internet. But what you're doing to sell this thing is really bad. I uh, just want to shout out that uh, he gave an interview to Michael Moynihan that everyone should go look up on YouTube uh, at Vice News, uh, in which the main uh, takeaway of it is uh, Moynihan telling him that he should be uh, impeached because he has Judge Judy cups on his uh, <laughs> desk, which is great. Uh, but also, oh for about five seconds, they linger on the Ron Swanson um, a pyramid of greatness on the wall of his office, which provoked... Oh, it's a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> it provoked a response from Nick Offerman, <laughs> the actor who created uh, Ron Swanson, um, in which he interviewed Ron Swanson. It's a it's a shit show, and it's very very funny, and uh, it's all it's all great. Um, Camille, do you have a some idiot wrote this? Um, no, no, I'm just gonna just just tag along here. Um, I I share um, much of uh, Fisher's sentiment on this. I I really do. I think that uh, Ajit is incredibly bright and articulate. And when he talked to us about net neutrality, I was impressed by the, the scope of his knowledge as somebody who's worked in and around telecom for a lot of the last 20 years and paid a lot of attention to these issues. I even spent some time working at the Center for Democracy and Technology on like digital divide issues. Um, that was a long time ago. Um, but, you know, I really wished he had gone out and had some sort of roundtable with uh, the folks at Gizmodo um, or Wired or something. Like, talk to the people who disagree with you, have serious discourse with them, recognize that even in this frantic, frenzied environment where so many people are up in arms and saying ridiculous things about what's likely to happen here, that that is, that is an opportunity for you to sort of respond forcefully and in an informed way to their critiques, not to, not to ignore them, not to avoid them, um, which it, it's, it's hard to escape the feeling that that's what was going on. Perhaps you sort of plan to do this either way um, because you can, um, but even if that's the case, I mean, I think you, you've got to go out there and make the case and you've got to do, you've got to make the case in the places where it, it matters the most, uh, where you're likely to get uh, folks who disagree with you to to pay close attention. So it's not too late. Still beat the drum. Boom. I actually do have a some idiot. Yeah, wrote you this. do. Yeah, 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 you do. 
it's amazing that I was able to come up with one so quickly, but uh, uh, this one's been hanging on in my brain for quite a while. Uh, the idiot in question is none other than Dinesh D'Souza, yes. who um, once upon a time was purportedly supposed to be the great young hope of intellectual conservatism, but uh, has since then just been. I mean, you know, we all know the career. And uh, what is he? What is he doing these days? Well, he's engaging in conspiracy theory uh, discussions with Bill Mitchell. Famous Twitter idiot. And uh, the this takes us back to the discussion at the opening part of the show about the Alabama Senate election. But, of course, Mitchell is sitting there thinking that, like, oh, I've heard these stories that black voters were bussed over the Mississippi state line to vote for uh, uh, Doug Jones. And, uh, and then Bill Mitchell said, like, oh, guys, this is – I'm going to quote him here. He said, guys, this is the strangest election I've ever seen. Roy Moore had leads of 12 and 8 points wiped out almost instantly. Huge chunks of uncontested votes coming in for Jones. I don't know what an uncontested vote is, incidentally, <laughs> uh, as he outvoted more by 70,000 votes in the final 35 percent. Very sketchy action. And then Dinesh D'Souza, supposed intellectual, responds by saying it does seem odd that Fox analysts were talking about a Jones victory, even as their own posted numbers showed Roy Moore in the lead. Hey, Dinesh, you're nominally a smart person. Let me explain to you why Fox analysts were able to do that, because they can look at a fucking map. Okay, (laughs) they know where the votes have come from and where the outstanding (laughs) votes remain. The votes that came from the urban cores of centers like Birmingham and Mon. Montgomery and the Black Belt, which reports late, were clearly not in yet. And so we knew when I knew I said it was, you know, 50, 50.5 to 47.5 and Moore still had a nominal three point lead. But at that point, I knew he was going to lose the race, probably because it was just obvious that with the with the precincts that were still out that, you know, the, the you know, that vote, that Democratic vote was going to end up overtaking Roy Moore. Dinesh D'Souza, in theory, is supposed to be smart enough to understand how these things work. I have been debating this all day, whether he's just gotten stupider with each passing month, you know, maybe jail does that to you. I don't know. One of the you know, crimes of, you know, sending too many people uh, to prison over incarceration is a problem in our society. Um, or uh, he's just sort of whoring himself out uh, for money and for clicks and for bucks. Um, I think I suspect I usually go for the cynical, um, the cynical answer. I think it's the latter. I think that's a really depressing commentary on how conservative media uh, has taken a real turn for the worse, for the dark uh, in the last several years, particularly in the Trump era. But um, I'm just appalled to see supposedly mainstream people trading conspiracy theories about an election where everybody basically understands what happened. There was, and that was great. Thank you for that. There was a uh, a, a response uh, tweet storm from who was it there? Oh, it was yes, it was this Hollywood screenwriter who was explaining how logistically impossible it would actually be to commit vote fraud on that scale. It was so, so damn good. It's uh, once in a while, probably one time out of I think 97 is the uh, the golden mean on this one um, to take the stupid troll fucks seriously enough to work through the math of their idiocy can be a pretty rewarding experience. And I and the I, guy's name, I got to hear it. His name is John Rogers and it's at John 
J-O-N-R-O-G-1. And you, you got to his thing. You'll find it. It's like a long, like, you know, seven, eight, nine part tweet storm. And it's just brilliant. And he just literally unpacks it. He's like, let's just think about what it would actually take to bust 40,000 black voters. <laughs> and, it was, and it was a worthwhile. I, I retweeted that that same tweet storm myself. I caught it. Uh, it was it was a great tweet storm. But I, was, I also thought valuable. And speaking of Jesse Walker, who wrote the great book about uh, conspiracy theories and how they all kind of share certain characteristics. Uh, you know, this one is not specifically directed at the right. The left indulges plenty of conspiracy theories as well, and they all fail to add in the math, which I, I feel like John Rogers did very eloquently and concisely. Like you said, it's a tweet storm, but only an eight tweet storm. Yes, well, now it's 280 characters. It's, you know, uh. you don't have to go for the full game theory on every Beach Boys storm. My, uh, some idiot wrote this, uh, Sadly, Camille, really, I, I I don't want to do this, but it's uh, Joy Ann Reed, um, Camille's uh, favorite MSNBC uh, commentator tonight. Her response to Donald Trump's photo op cutting uh, like a red ribbon in front of a page of empty or like a pile of empty pages representing regulations, um, which is a topic that I've written about a lot and talked about a little bit over the last year here. Her comment was... Deregulation is designed to do only one thing, colon, make corporations more profitable by reducing the cost of doing business. Um, there's other stuff in that uh, tweet because it's 280 characters. Um, no, <laughs> no, that's not that was not the only um, uh, reason that Jimmy Carter uh, deregulated the homebrewing of beer. It didn't make or the airline industry for that matter. Well, I was kind of like going for for like the the drunky part because we we you know we're like we're like half a bottle. We didn't even like polish this bottle. This is not good work here, uh, Fisher. Yeah, I mean, I you know I still have an early early a.m. rise, eh. but uh, but we're, we we are we're, there's still only two of us as well. That's true. But it's but, but but as well, like let, let's remember that there are plenty of government regulations that are terrible, like slavery. You know, like <laughs> that's a like regulation, actually. Yeah, exactly. So that when that was deregulated, that probably hurt corporations, certain corporations. Yeah, I know. And it's the idea. It's the C word uh, of of a modern political discourse. You want to find where the C people are and be on the opposite side of that. That's not how uh, life is lived. Generally speaking, the people using the craft beer example, there were people who wanted to like experiment with home brewing in their basement in California, New York, Colorado, and Washington. Um, and it was illegal because of prohibition era acts. And it was made legal under deregulation. I just used air quotes <laughs> by Alan Cranston, uh, Senator corrupt Senator from California. And uh, I think a Barnaby Carbel, something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm appealing to Fisher's New Yorkness here, but anyways, he was a uh, uh, New York legislator. Uh, no, the the first people who get the benefits from deregulation are not corporations; they're human beings whose activities have now been legalized. Because previous to that, if they engaged in that activity and there was a cop nearby, they would go to jail. Mm -hmm. This is an important concept, as is the fact that airlines uh, that Jeff was referencing, 
the same four airlines had the same more or less market share between 1930 and 1975 until Jimmy Carter, who I don't think was out there saying, like, how can I make corporations more profitable? Um, don't think that's what he was going on about. I don't think that Teddy Kennedy, who chaired the hearings about airline deregulation uh, with the help of his legislative assistant, Stephen Breyer, liberal Supreme Court justice, um, with the help intellectually of Alfred Kahn, a liberal academic talking about how to apply antitrust rationale onto the government with testimony from people like Ralph fucking Nader in the 1970s. These people weren't waking up in the morning saying, you know what we really need to do? We need to make corporations more profitable. That's not what was going on. What you need to remember, though, is Joy Reid does not even remember how the Soviet Union and their satellite states <laughs> existed or broke up in 1989 and 1990. So to ask her about basic questions about regulation and uh, which parties and which members of which parties were aligned with whom a decade earlier is probably uh, the height of privilege, frankly, Matt. It won't be my uh, first or last time mentioning this, but one of the greatest American political documents is the transcript of the 1980 debate between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Uh, they only had one. It's the one where he said, there he goes again, you know, or there you go again. Uh, but also extended jags of Jimmy Carter talking about how great deregulation is and how he's going to do more of it. Uh, and then also Ronald Reagan talking about the importance of like emancipation for women and the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, so it just it confounds modern political uh, tribes. Anyways, that's as much time as we have to babble about all of this. Jeff Blair, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody listen to Jeff Blair's podcast, Political Beats. Follow him as uh, Esoteric CD on Twitter. Subscribe on iTunes. Yes, great wow. podcast. Uh, three quarters of us have been on it. Camille will be on it soon to complete the quadrifecta, if that's a word. It's not. Uh, the tetrifecta, yeah. I think. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but uh, Jeff's great. His podcast is great. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, man. This is a lot of fun. Good. Camille, go to bed. I'm already there. Much love to all Fosters. Bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.